0: A lot of you folks already know, but I have a new album that'll be coming out soon. It's called Souvenirs of a Misspent Youth, and it'll be released in Europe on July 7th, and it'll be released in the United States on August 19th. And we got a lot of good people working with us on this record. We're feeling optimistic, and, uh, and we have meetings and things like that, which is a weird thing for me. I'm not used to having meetings, but we had one yesterday. and. Somebody asked me at the meeting, so Otis, what's your goal for this record? And Amy and I are goal-oriented people, but we believe in attainable goals, something you can actually aspire to. So we talked about it a little bit ahead of time, and we've decided that our goal for this record is we hope we sell enough records and we make enough money to where we can buy a decent vacuum cleaner. So I said that on this conference call. And uh, I said, you know, I'd... Like to sell enough records to maybe buy a vacuum cleaner. And there was this really long, awkward silence of probably 15 or 20 seconds. And you could just feel the disappointment in the air. And I realized I should probably aim a little higher. So I said, Well, I mean, I want to I get a nice one, you know, maybe something from Sears. Hi friends this is otis gibbs and you're listening to thanks for giving a damn i'm sitting here in my living room in east nashville and i have my cat frankie sitting right next to me and he's purring really loud this is a personal journal this is a bit of an experiment i like to say right up front that i haven't the slightest idea what i'm doing but i decided to do it anyway and this show is founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter there's a creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Amy LeVere. Amy's a singer and a songwriter and a bass player who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about Amy at amylevere.com. I caught up with Amy when she was playing here in Nashville, and she was playing at the basement, and instead of having her over to my house which is on the other side of town i got this bright idea that uh there's some friends of ours that have offices upstairs from the basement i thought well maybe it'd be a little easier if we just go up and you know we could chat up there so i set the whole thing up and it was my idea i just didn't realize how busy the offices would be they were nice enough to let us use the offices but we ended up in an office and it's very reverby the sounds a little bit uh not perfect and I apologize for that and the phone rang in this office a few different times people kept walking in and interrupting us it was a very imperfect situation and I pride myself on you know the audio being really really good on on this show and this one isn't quite up to snuff you can hear all the reverb in the room there's a lot of background noise and I apologize for that Amy's very soft-spoken So it was kind of hard to get a good signal on the mic sometimes. Having said that, Amy was wonderful and she'd driven in three hours from Memphis, got right out of the van, came right up and chatted with me. I really enjoyed chatting with her. She was very down to earth and a really easy going person that I enjoyed spending time with. Here's Amy LaBeer.
1: I'll still do a private party from time to time, or a corporate gig, and um, this was a corporate gig, and it was on the Mississippi Queen, which is a riverboat, and it was this, uh, they had had it revamped, and it was a maiden voyage, and the concept was, is they were going to let all these cyclists uh, book the rooms, um, take them down from St. Louis, I believe, to Memphis, where they would get off, go for a nice long bike ride, get back on, and they were working their way down to New Orleans and they would get off also, I think, in Natchez and go for a long bike ride and then go to New Orleans, and it was just, you know, cyclic cyclist's adventure. So it was the very first night of their their run, and the concept was we would get on and play to Tunica and get off and have to drive back to Memphis. So this already involved having someone follow me to Tunica, which was about an hour to drop off my van and then with their minivan, take all of my gear to the Mississippi Queen to load on so that we could, you know, have a van there to, for the drop-off. So we get on the, the boat, and the cyclists had ro- uh, ridden their bikes 40 miles that day. And they had boarded it at 7 a.m., you know, from St. Louis. So we get on the boat, and then they have this huge feast prepared for them of, like, etouffee and french bread and um uh, you know uh, bread pudding and they've got wine and they've got all this food and they're already falling asleep you know they're all just exhausted they've had the biggest day they've ridden 40 miles they've eaten beignets they've you know so we get up to play and then the guy wants to get up and introduce us we think and he the, you know whoever's hosting this event gets on the podium and he starts to we're on stage, and in front of he starts to explain to them. Um, it took about ten minutes, but you know things like how to flush the toilets. You know, just like just going on and on about you know boat maintenance, and if you feel this, and really you know thanks for being here, and this is how you flush your toilet, and all, And we're just up there feeling so ridiculous, and then everybody goes to bed pretty much, and we we honor our gig, and you know there's three or four people with their arms crossed dozing off watching us. And then here comes the kicker. We get to Tunica and they had not arranged for um, a docking spot. So they had to lower this plank that it was about a four foot drop down to where the rocks were that lead up to the hill to where the sidewalk was. And, um, and I'm in a dress and heels and, and uh, it's, they can't stop the boat. So it's moving about five miles an hour. So they had some deckhands get down and help me down onto the rocks. And it was about a 15-foot climb up to the sidewalk and my, you know, dress and barefoot. And by the time we got all the gear off with their help, I mean, it was strung a quarter mile down this long sidewalk that was a river walk. And every single person that was on the boat was watching. You know, they all had come to see us <laughs> disembark the boat because it was so horrific. Um and that was that was by far one and we did that that whole day. That whole I mean, that whole thing paid me four hundred dollars. And it was a four piece band and it was like this twelve hour nightmare ordeal. But that was that goes down as one of the worst gigs I've ever had.
0: That pretty much explains the music business of Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was a tour guide at Sun Studio for six and a half years. Mm-hmm. I loved that job so much. I loved it.
0: Did you just show up one day and apply for the job there?
1: Um, no, I had a friend that worked there, and I, ha- I was in the habit of bringing people to Sun Studio because I was such a fan of the place. And um, I actually, the first uh, recording I ever made when I moved to Memphis was, you know, we re- rented studio time at Sun. So... I just was kind of a fixture around there at the time when I moved there. There was also a little—they used to still make the cheeseburgers where the gift shop is now. It was a little diner, so I was kind—I'd of, hang out quite a bit. And apparently there was an opening, and and someone called me and asked if I'd be interested in giving tours. So I was invited in and then fired. Like <laughs> six and a half years later.
0: <laughs> did you ever see any interesting people come in or any uh, musicians oh, yeah. or famous people?
1: I did. I um I got to I got to give a lot of interesting artists. Uh, tours, but I, I don't really get uh, starstruck really easily, and uh, you know, musicians just are coming through there every day um, I was really excited to be the one to give Questlove the tour and he he then became my friend on Facebook a day later which I thought was so cool <laughs> this was like 2006 or something but um, the only time I've really ever lost my shit was I was given a tour and i you know, when you open the door to let people back into where the gift shop is. I opened the door and sitting at the table, it was Bill Murray. And he was sitting at this table wearing Elvis sunglasses. (laughs) And uh, I, I really don't know what happened to me, but I just beelined for him. And I'm pretty sure that the words that came out of my mouth were, oh my God, I don't know what to do with you. Could I get your autograph? (laughs) I think that's what I said. And then he, Gave me this big, huge bear hug and picked me up and gave me a bear hug and uh, bought all my records that were, you know, I think I had two, two or three at the time that were they were selling at Sun and and um, I lost his autograph by the end of the day because it just wasn't about that. I just wanted to interact and then he, uh, I, I had my photograph taken with him and on that particular day um, it was day two of trying proactive because my skin has always been volatile and I tried, it was day two of proactive and I had a chemical burn on my face so this great picture I have of me with Bill Murray, my face is beet red (laughs) and it's, I just couldn't hang it on my wall but that was, that was the best. He really, he really, I felt like I knew him he just walked right out of a movie and right into my workplace is how okay well at the time uh, br549 was pretty much a really big deal but they had just sort of worked their way off a little abroad. you know they were basically if they showed up it was a massive deal they had just gotten their arista deal i think at the time but i had been a fan and they i you know would seen them play there a bunch but the brazil billies were kind of my favorite i loved the brazil billies were playing down there and um the shack shakers but i'm i let's see I'm, i moved to um i moved here Nashville in uh, the end of 95 because I left here in 98 so I was barely here really two years actually Um, but um, at the time uh, the Shack Shakers were playing and I was trying to get a band together a backup band I really didn't know anybody in Nashville and I was really having trouble I had I had put together a band but it was kind of these session player guys that I had met that were willing to learn the you know some some of my songs and play one gig and pay me this and I I just was so not used to that kind of scene at all so when I saw the Shack Shakers play I was specifically interested in the guitar player Brian Barriman who was playing with them at the time and he was real shy and approachable you know sweet guy and I had approached him about you know hey I'm trying to put a band together could you be of help I don't really know anybody here and he wasn't interested at all he just said uh, no, I'm really busy but Gabe might do it and Gabe was playing upright for them at the time. Um, and then so I, I met Gabe and then Gabe fronted a band called um, the Connoisseur Rats that played real regularly at the Bluegrass Inn and um, we we got together for a couple of rehearsals and three weeks later eloped and Gabe and I were married for six years. But <clears throat> pretty much um Yeah, it was about that time I was working on Lord Broadway and I was a live-in assistant to a business manager on Music Row and I really had very little um, social life in Nashville because I was working, you know, eight hours a day in a management office and then going home to iron his shirts and, and or take his kids shopping if they were home from boarding school or something like that, so it took me a long time to get my get any sort of sense of what was going on in Nashville, but I didn't enjoy it at the time. Every time I come back to Nashville, I like the city a whole lot better than I did when I lived here.
0: That's a rough initiation to any city.
1: Yeah, it was basically the, you know, the cookie cutter music business of Music Row, which I wasn't interested in. I just wanted to learn the ropes. You know, I'd been playing in bands since I was 13 and I thought, well, I might as well figure out how this machine works. That was so unnecessary, but, um, my trip to lower Broadway was so influential to me because I started sitting in with a lot of bands, and that's really where I started to cut my teeth playing upright bass, and at least got my endurance enough to play more than two or three songs up there, you know? So I do value that.
0: Well, those were four- and five-hour sets, weren't they?
1: Yeah. hmm
0: You learn a lot doing that.
1: You learn a whole lot doing <laughs> that. You pretty much sit in with anybody anymore. <laughs> Well, I was um, I was actually playing at this little pub called Murphy's in Memphis, and um, I have forever covered a couple of Wanda Jackson songs in the set, and um, I did Funnel of Love, and at the end of the, well, I think we were actually just on break, and a guy came up and introduced himself to me and said he was the assistant casting director of a Johnny Cash biopic that was going to be filled called film called Walk the Line and that they you know, were looking for a Wanda Jackson and would I be interested in auditioning and of course I was and I think it was maybe even a month later that they were starting to hold the auditions and so I went when I was supposed to and sat in a room with a bunch of girls that kind of looked like me and had to go in and play guitar which I don't do. I do not play acoustic guitar very well so I just you know, kind of barely learned up one Wanda Jackson song and um, somehow managed to get the part. And there was a girl that Wanda herself had sent um, wanting to play her in the film. And uh, very weirdly, I mean, the girl was so talented musically, was why she chose her, obviously. But she looked nothing like Wanda Jackson, you know. And I think they chose me just basically because they knew I could sing the song and I, I didn't, I don't favor her, but just, you know, I have dark hair that would do that thing. And uh, well, No, what it ended up being, you know, it was, In the film, it's basically edited out of there, I mean, uh, in fact, it's not even Wanda Jackson on the uh, credits, it just says Wanda, because they edited it, I mean, they edited the scene to nothing, really, Um, the actor Waylon Payne that was playing Jerry Lee and I go out and finish a duet when Johnny and June have an argument on stage, and um, instead of actually really showing us do that, they just cut to Johnny Cash beating on her dressing room door, So, so the scene was gutted, really so I barely am in that movie actually.
0: Was it an intimidating audition?
1: No, I'm, I'm, I don't really, I mean, I'm kind of one of those people that never feels like anything's really gonna happen anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: We're kindred spirits. I never, I never
1: seem to get frazzled by things like that because I just, I have a defeatist thing about it, you know, and I get really lucky and I just It's like a calmness comes over me when things like that happen. I can completely talk. Well, if that, that doesn't happen, I'll actually get to put the tomatoes in this year or something, you know. <laughs> it's like Craig Brewer and I have been acquaintances in Memphis for a long time. It's, a, you know, Memphis is a super small town and the artist community is very incestuous and really supportive, which is great. But um, Craig Brewer's wife... Her sister is married to a guy that played guitar with me for a really long time. And so that's how we have been acquainted for a really long time. And uh, and it was really the same thing where Craig came to me and said, look, I am not in charge of this. I did write and I will be directing this film. But the studio house hires the casting agency. But I want you to audition. It's a small part. You just look like the girl that, you know, it's nothing. It's, and it really, it was the same story. I walked into a room with a bunch of girls that look just like me you know, read some lines on film and got the part. And I'm sure Craig put in a good word for me, you know. Yeah. So they were probably leaning my way, but I, got, I, got, I did have to do the, do the song and dance, so.
0: Did you have a background in acting before any of this?
1: You know, I always really enjoyed it, but no, not really. I mean, I, did, I definitely, when I was little, I was Dorothy in the school play and I did get Cinderella, but I've always had in my nature kind of that, you know, hey, look over here, peanut, you know, peanut butter and jelly, like, everything's gonna be okay you know i had sort of a there were a lot of brooding people in my family and i i've always tried to entertain i guess cheer people up um but i do i do think now after some time that um it is something that i i'm i do it comes naturally to me and i enjoy it a lot I really do, and I, I love it. And it's so similar to being a live performer as a musician for me, because when I'm really connecting with what I'm doing musically, I'm acting out the story of the song, at least in my mind, you know? So it's like when you're a little kid and you get to really play make-believe so far that you like touch something that's supposed to be hot and you almost feel it, you know, because you're really playing. That's what acting's like when you're doing it, when I feel like I'm doing it right, you know? It's like you're in that river, and it's fun. Yeah, that, um, it came about so cool, and i got to thank Jimbo Mathis for this, and he doesn't even know it, I'm sure, but uh, Jimbo Mathis was was on C60's radar, meaning that he was familiar with Jimbo's work, and perhaps they'd played some blues festivals over in Europe together or something. But he was a fan. C six Steve, you know, really liked what Jimbo was doing. And um the first time I went over to London, uh, we hired a publicist who was at the time C six Steve's publicist and after meeting with this guy, he was like, Man, Amy, I've gotta introduce you to C six Steve, you guys would really hit it off and so a couple of days later he said, Yeah, Steve wants to meet you. he's at this hotel and we come to this um, the publicist and I show up to this hotel, and I mean, it's just like gold, gilded, velvet, you know, this over-the-moon hotel, and I I had no concept, preconceived notion of whoever this C6 Steve was. Hadn't seen a picture of him, had no idea, We're just going along with, I'm supposed to be somewhere at three to meet this guy, you know? And we get to the hotel, it's a beautiful hotel, and out of the elevator... Perhaps this older, gray-bearded man wearing no shirt underneath some jean overalls with some big work boots and this beautiful sparkly blue eyes, big grin, and he's all excited. He's got my record in his hand, and he's so excited to talk to me because he sees that Jimbo Mathis played on my record, and he wants to know how I know Jimbo and if I know Seamus and you know, these Kenny Brown, you know, he wanted to know if I knew all these blues guys, which of course I do. And, And, um, and then we just hit it off. I mean, really hit it off. And, um, it was just a few months later that he invited my band to come over and open up for him for a month tour, which was really my foot in the door over there. And that was really special. And then it was less than a year after that that he invited me to come play Upright in his band. And it was my first tour bus tour. It was seven weeks on a tour bus with 11 dudes. I was the only girl on that bus. But it's, um, you know, one of his sons is his guitar tech. Another son helps manage him. Another son does all his graphic design work. He has five sons. Um, And his wife would periodically come meet us on the road. But everybody was so professional and took such good care of me. And... Steve's real, a real generous storyteller, and um, by the end of it, I just completely fell in love with everything he's about. I think he is, he is exactly the man he portrays, and he's just darling.
0: It, when you're in a bus with somebody, you know, or in a van or something for an extended amount of time, you learn exactly who they are.
1: So much so that he is really seasick, Steve. He gets so seasick. Uh, Motion sickness, and and so much so that he has to sit with the bus driver at the front of the bus and look at the road, or he gets seasick. And pretty often, like if we had a very long jaunt, he would take a train just because that was easier on him than the double-decker tour bus that we were on because he has a lot of trouble, and he takes the pills and wears the bracelet, whatever he can (laughs) do. But apparently he got the name way back when he was hopping trains. Since he was a hobo, that was easy. Basically, when I was, and I'm I'm pretty sure I was 13 now, I've done the math, I've been saying 14, but I was in 10th grade when I lived in Decatur, Illinois, and this was still Michigan, so I think I was about 13, I was in 9th grade, maybe. Um, this girl who was a senior at the time, her name was Becky, and we were both kind of punk rockers. I had a mohawk, you know, it was, I had a Husker Du jacket, I didn't even really like Husker Du, but... Um, she came up to me at my locker and said she was running away and would I go with her and I said of course I would go with her. I was always up for an adventure I was barely hanging on by a thread you know being at school and um, both my parents were traveling for work and my 16 year old sister who was a hell raiser, was sort of my guardian at the time and we were just always at each other's throats and always getting into trouble and so I was ready to, to have some sort of adventure and um, so we got someone that could drive a car to drive us to the bus station in Detroit and we took a Greyhound to Chicago and this girl Becky that I was with she apparently knew some woman that was going to help us out when we got there and I'm so glad I never did get to meet what that woman was because I don't know what that was but um, you know we were trying her on the payphone and she never answered and um, basically we just slept the night in the train station a couple nights and then you know, word spread and a security guard approached us and basically I'm putting quarters in one of those little TVs all the time is what I'm doing because it was the <laughs> scariest thing to go out. I mean, there were there were real live pimps saying, you girls looking for work. I mean, that was really happening. There was a big bus train station. There was a McDonald's and a Burger King inside this train station and outside of it was industrial desolation at the time. It's kind of built up nice around Chicago there now, but at the time it was frightening out the doors. So we had a security guard come up to us and ask us if our names were Amy and Becky. And I said, yes, sir. Like, take take me now. Where are we going? I don't care. Just get me out of here. And they locked us in a luggage cage, which was basically a chain link fence cage. It had, I guess, lost luggage. I'm not sure what it was. And a police officer came down and um, took us into an office where he then told us horror story after horror story about girls chained to beds. And just really awful stories. Took us in a paddy wagon to Juvie Hall for the night and then we were flown home with police escorts the next day. So it was some big grand learning lesson of an adventure. But um, about that time, you know, I was experimenting with a lot of drugs and I tried crystal meth for the first, for the only time, I've only ever done crystal meth for one weekend. (laughs) And it was about that same time. And um, at the time I remembered saying, Well, this is my drug of choice because we were mostly doing hallucinogenics and that was always terrifying but fun. but crystal meth was something that just made me feel amazing you know and i've that particular bubble of time in my life was just so freaky and you know um it's always struck me when i see some a homeless woman specifically that maybe favors me or because they're out there you know and it always just freaks me out at how fragile staying on any kind of sane path of life. It really is. I mean, it's, that, it's just, I could just teeter off into homelessness, you know, pretty, pretty easily. And, um, so meeting Steve and hearing all these great stories about, you know, him being a hobo, which he's able to tell romantically, but some of them are violent and frightening, you know, but, um, I don't know that he regrets that part of his life, really. You know, I think he learned a lot from it and has what he knows is a unique experience you know and I just would I think I thought prior to writing what becomes the opening track of the record that had I stayed on the lam oh I hope I wish I would have run into some guy like C60 because he would have been so nurturing and probably made me go home and saved me you know it's like he's that kind of character and probably did that for a bunch of people he ran across you know
0: I appreciate you (laughs) chatting with me and uh thank you it's great to Get to hang out in this office or wherever we're at. Yeah. Maybe I'll go answer that phone now. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for your time, too.
0: I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Amy for meeting up with me in those offices up above the basement here in Nashville you can find out everything you need to know about amy at amylevere.com if you'd like to help support this show just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a cd a t-shirt you can download any record i've ever made you can buy one of my photographic prints you can buy one of amy's records You can buy one of amy's children's books but anything that you buy we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or enjoy my music, or enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at OtisGibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.